What the footy? What the footy? What the footy? What the footy? Hi there, it's Paul, and you're listening to What the Footy, the podcast that takes football fans behind the scenes. Here is what I have lined up for you to. That, that's the idea: is to disempower players because as soon as players ask for more and they're educated. It, it poses a problem to their economic model. It's the What The Footy podcast. I hope you love it. Not like it, I hope you love it. Download, subscribe, rate and review and tell a friend to tell a friend. Let's go. Knew some other guys liked me, but I didn't know it was to that Imagine extent. Imagine being a kid in primary school, now it's putting <laughs> awesome. Powerful people and I think they need to recognise that, but then also they need to be represented the right way. Sport in general is nothing without fans. Uh, based on you know, one single source of revenue alone, that being the TV. Team. Let's just win this to appease the fan. Alex, how are you doing today? You good? Good, Paul. Nice one for having me on the podcast. Really excited for it. No, I'm excited too. We had uh, Dan Parnell as our last guest. He's an Evertonian, so it's only right that we get Liverpool fan on the week after. <laughs> yeah, we need some balance. Yeah, we need some balance. But um, yeah, we start off this show with this question, which is, what is football to you, a business or a sport and why? That's a really important question, Paul, to be honest. And um, it's something that I grapple with constantly because... The job that I'm in, um, we like to think of it, you know, as as kind of a, a sport for all, and we we want to in, increase kind of people's or better people's experience playing football professionally. But then once once you get into the into the nitty gritty and you you're sort of dealing with football day to day, you realise that football is a business, and you know people, um, you know, it operates in a very commercial, commodified sense. You played the game yourself as well. Um, you played for Everton, you played for Liverpool, you played for Leeds, AZ Alkmaar as well. Um, just, just sort of talk to me about your experiences as a player. Obviously, we see now, obviously, with a lot of the work that you do, obviously, for anyone who doesn't know, FIFA Pro is effectively the global players' union um, that represents players and advocates for players and it would just be interesting to hear what your experiences were like as a player and how you think things have changed and evolved over time. Yeah. Um, so when I started playing football, you know, there wasn't even like a, an opportunity to be a professional footballer for women. Like that just didn't exist. If you wanted to play in a professional setting um, or have a professional experience, the, the idea was for you to go to America and compete in the college system there after you'd finished your schooling. Um but the problem was if you were in the England um, setup, which I was from a young age, like you, you, you were, you know, discouraged from from doing that because they wanted to keep the best players in England. That wasn't me saying I was one of the best players. That was just the the strategy of the England um, team at the time. So um, yeah, I didn't I didn't go and and you know I completed my education here, but um, football. Yeah, I started at Everton from a really young age and. We were really lucky because we had um, a coach in Mo Marley who was an ex-England um, captain and she was an ex-Everton legend, really. And she knew the club inside out. She knew the players inside out. And she got the best out of it, um, a group of players that, you know, had been at the club for a, for a very long time. Um, I left Everton um, because they, they brought some really good players in and I just weren't getting an, weren't getting an opportunity, really, as, as football works. Um, and my under-19s manager at the time for England, Julie Chipchase, who sadly passed away now, um, 
asked me to go up to Leeds and, and play for Leeds. And um, yeah, I, I, I absolutely loved my time at Leeds. It was six good years. We had a couple of, um, you know, FA Cup final losses, um, won the League Cup, you know, and, and it was just a really good group of young players. Um, we had a, a really good team, Sue Smith, Steph Houghton, Carly Telford, the list goes on um, of England internationals. And we, we just had a really good vibe about the club. Um, it was probably probably been my best um, memory of football in terms of a, a team buzz around away from football as well. Um, I then <clears throat> went back to Everton in 2010. Um, and then I moved to Alkmaar, who were the Eredivisie champions um, over in Holland. And the environment was completely different, Paul. It was very professional. Um, they had some senior Dutch internationals who were very experienced. You know, we were in the Champions League. Um, and it was just, you know, we were training every single day. And whilst I trained every day when I was playing for Everton, I was, I was working and I was in university at the same time. Um, and we, we had a little bit of money in terms of, like, travelling expenses, but we didn't really get paid. And so I, I was getting paid at, at, at Ed, and I was also training every day and it was honestly it was like a rocket up me up my arse to be honest because I remember my first week of training still now and I would have considered myself like pretty fit and my legs were in bits you know just like playing football every single day at like a really high tempo um but I loved it you know my teammates were great I've still got really good friends I, I obviously I live back in the Netherlands now working for FIFA Pro. um and yeah, we, we had a really good team. It was a great experience. Um, there was a different focus on football. The culture is very different to football here. It's very technical. Um, less emphasis on running, which is, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an England focus. And then I went back to England to play in the FAWSL. Again, we had a, we had a brilliant team, to be honest. Um, played under Mark Sampson, who was the England manager who got sacked. Didn't have a great experience with him. I didn't think he was a you know a good human being essentially. Um, and then I finished me my career at, at the club that I support, which is Liverpool. Um, so yeah, that's a bit of a whistle stop tour of my of my career. <laughs> no, you, you you definitely mentioned some uh, some interesting points there, and and just obviously with the move to to AZ Alkmaar, just sort of talk to me about that transition. Of obviously. You played a lot of your football, obviously playing at Everton, playing at Leeds, being from Liverpool, obviously playing football around that sort of northwest sort of Yorkshire sort of region, and then moving and transitioning to playing over in the Netherlands. How how tough was that transition, and what sort of help was sort of given to you? Because we typically hear within the, within the game that players sort of struggle and they need time to adapt. How was that sort of like for you, and um, and sort of navigating that? Yeah, I mean, I was really naive, Paul, because, you know, the way everyone says, like, oh, Dutch people speak really good English, which, you know, they do. There's, there's no arguing with that. And I just had that in me, in me mind when I went there. And then it was, again, another rocket up my arse, like that, you know, meetings were conducted in Dutch. Um, the tactics were all conducted in Dutch. The dressing room is all Dutch. And um, I, it, was a, it was a real um, lonely place for a couple of months. I remember phoning my mum about three months in and being like, no, I, I want to come home. I, I, I don't really enjoy this. And, you know, I, I want to be with my friends and family. And my mum was just like, no, you need to stick it out. And to be honest, I'm so glad that I did because it's probably up there with one of the best experiences that I've ever had in terms of a cultural transition, um, both in and outside of football. You, you know, you see the game in a very different way, which, you know, I needed. And I, and, um, I still probably see 
the, the game in a very Dutch lens, I guess, because I, I, I really admire the way that the Dutch play football. Um, but yeah, in terms of transition, you know, my teammates were really helpful. Um, they did speak good English. They just, you know, didn't speak it um, on, the, on the pitch or, you know, in the dressing room. They, um, they looked after me, um, but I'm not going to say it wasn't hard. I think I could have done with a little bit more support, but, you know, the professionalisation process was very new then. We didn't realise what players needed and they probably didn't have the resources to actually invest in me in the way that they do with the men. Um, on saying that, I went to Dutch lessons um, a couple of times a week, a couple of times a week, which was a, a really fun experience with the men's first team. Um, and then, so yeah, it's 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 kind of like whilst there was gaps in the in the sort of the resources and the and the um, yeah. integration period, I really enjoyed it, and it was a very fast learning curve for me, and and it got me out of my comfort zone, which I think you know everybody needs from time to time. No, I think that's I think that's quite interesting, and and, and just sort of obviously moving on to sort of what you do at Fiv Pro as well, and. There's a, there's a lot of issues out there that, that a lot of players face. We've seen players obviously um, sort of speak up about the international match calendar and the fixture congestion and the growing commercialisation of football and the more games that are needed, the less sort of break times that are sort of available, player workload, load management. What are the main sort of issues that you're seeing a lot of players across both the men's and women's game coming to you with and, and, and kind of wanting to to see a, a real sort of change with? Yeah, I think, so just for a bit of context, I work in union and player relations um, with a little bit of policy work at, at FIFPRO. So um, kind of the work that I do is very union and player related, obviously, um, goes without saying with my title. So I think the the idea of FIFPRO is to centralise the voice of the player. Um, that's our first and, and foremost concern and to treat players as humans rather than commodities. And I think that that gets a lost, um, like going back to your first question about whether football is a business or a sport, I think that gets lost a lot of, um, t- most of the time within the narrative. And I think we have this idea of, of professional footballers because we just see the, the premiership and we see these really privileged footballers that get paid a lot of money and, and do very little work, when in fact the reality is very different for the majority of footballers. So. To give you an example, um, in 2017, FIFPRO conducted a, um, a global conditions report on women's football. And it was something, you know, the, the percentages of, of what women were getting paid, I think, was hitting, you know, maximum $1,000 per month, um, which is, you know, you probably get paid more being a McDonald's. And with women, you know, the, the conditions are, are not the same. So you're going into work with um, insufficient um, you know, um, facilities, access to facilities is very limited, medical care, you know, all of the things that we consider, um, nutrition, fitness, all of the, all the components that, um, you know, that are essential to being a professional footballer are lacking really within women's football, like in a very broad sense. So in women's football specifically, we are like seeing issues with the international match calendar. There's underload and overload in 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 pockets. So predominantly, um, players are underloaded. Um, you know, domestic players, but the, like a lot of international players are overloaded. So there's a real imbalance between what players um, are doing and the loading that they're doing, and that influences obviously injuries, etc. So the international match calendar is a concern. Um, for, for women and, and for men, you know, men are highly overloaded. I think that that's 
very um, public knowledge, um, specifically in, in you know in the women's football, we're, we're struggling with um, the working conditions within the clubs and also um, within within the international setup. We don't actually deal with domestic issues. We are just an international um, organisation. So conditions, so workplace conditions. So again, going back to medical contracts, short contracts, remuneration, late payments, no payments, um, injuries, medical uh, medical care, maternity, mental health. You know, the, the list is literally endless. And I think our job at FIFPRO is to sort of be a data-driven organisation. So it's not, we're just not going to um, FIFA or whoever the stakeholders are and saying like, we think that these issues are concerning. We're actually going and surveying players and saying, how do you feel about this? What is your experience of X? Then we, you know, like, like any good organisation we develop and we analyse that data. And then we have some really substantive um, data to go and sort of try and drive change within, within different facets of the game so that's that's on the women's side um on the men's side you know it's 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 overload is huge mental health is huge um the the, the migration of players is huge and the treatment of of those migrating players is concerning as well um you know things like ecgs medical care um again i go back to the example that i gave before we have this very rose tinted um rose glass tinted whatever this the saying is about how we see professional footballers because we only see the shiny um you know really capitalized commodified aspect of the game where actually for probably 70 percent of footballers that's not the case so that's what we deal with um on a day-to-day -day basis and it's really it's really re rewarding where but it's you know it's it's also um sometimes really sad work it's really difficult to deal with um players you know come with come to FIFA Pro with, with real issues in terms of um you know all all, all aspects of the career. Um, and we're a quite a small organization as well. You know, we only have like a maximum 40 people to deal with, you know, a, a constant stream of of um of of concerns that are raised by players. So yeah, that's that's it in a nutshell. Um, I think we could have probably have the whole podcast to talk about FIFA, but you know we haven't got that time. <laughs> yeah, because I think a lot of the issues there that you mentioned are, are really important issues, and um, there's 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 a real drive for players who want to sort of have a seat at the table, and, and you typically hear this sort of media narrative of just stick to football. You don't know what you're talking about. Um, I had um, Dave Bassett on the podcast, and. Uh, and uh, he mentioned that George Graham used to say that players play, managers manage, and directors direct. But the modern game is obviously it's moved on, and the modern game has evolved. And, and you have players like Jordan Henderson, Raheem Sterling, Megan Rapinoe, players who are highly intelligent and who who, who want to be more than these conversations. But how how receptive are the, the governing bodies to 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 having players at the table and, and to the ideas that you put forward? Um, because it almost seems from a fan perspective or someone from the outside that they're almost making these decisions and no one's kind of being consulted where when you think about it, the most the two most important people in football are the fans and the players. Yeah, you're not wrong, Paul. I think like that is kind of key to our work as well, that we want to give players a seat at the table and ask their opinions about issues that concern them, you know, that affect their their life and their livelihood. I think um, 
in no other kind of work environment do the workers just get completely overlooked and decisions are made that really impact the way that they live their lives and the, and the work that they do. And I think by not giving players a seat at the table and um, you know, reinforcing this rhetoric of an anti-intellectual culture that exists around football, we're just it's just an, an attempt to disempower players when actually, like what you've just said, without it, without the without um, players and without fans, football doesn't exist. And I think you know the stakeholders that surround um, professional football sometimes conveniently overlook that fact, both in terms of fans and players. So. Yeah, I think for us at FIFA Pro, um, and definitely the work that I've done as a, in my PhD and, and, and post-PhD is that it's about giving players a voice. It's about asking them how they feel about issues that affect them. And I think it's about educating players about, their, about how powerful they are. And I don't really like the term empowerment because I think it's been, you know, I think, it, again, it's been commodified and marketed in a, in a, in a negative way for me. But... It is about educating and through education, we empower players and what that happen, what happens then is they go and ask for more, they go and demand more and they go and make a, you know, make a claim, stake a claim in the, in the game that they, that they prop up. So I think the examples that you give are really powerful, you know, Raheem Steele and Megan Rapino, Jordan Henderson, and this, and this kind of wave of athlete activism that we're seeing now is so powerful. And I think what it's, for us, it's about, I'm certainly moving away from FIFA and just talking about my own personal opinion. I think if we harness that in a collective sense, I think it could be even more powerful. I don't think, I don't think football should be like, you know, in, in a way like dictating these social justice movements or like, or having a seat sort of like saying, oh, we think football should deal with this now. It shouldn't be, become so streamlined in that way. And it is a little bit reactive, but I think that that's positive because I think, again, it empowers and it, it kind of like in a collective sense um, can be a force for good. You know, these big corporations now, you see it with like, and every year on like LGBTQ plus month, I'm just like, oh my God, I can't even as like part of the LGBT community. I don't even support like rainbow laces and stuff because it's just, you know, it's just sport washing, you know, you companies now want to just drape the flag in the lgbtq plus flag you want the rainbow flag to say we support this or we support black lives matters and it's just bullshit so i think when it comes from the athlete and it's you know it's triggered like marcus rashford he wants to help people in his community megan rapino wants to support the lgbt community and and really unseat donald trump you know in lots of ways that political movement i think it can be really powerful but i think through sport washing it becomes diluted and we lose the power of the athletes. And I think organisations like FIFA, like UEFA, like UN and all of that, that, you know, just want the face of players next to campaigns. I think probably that, that's the idea is to disempower players because as soon as players ask for more and they're educated, it, it poses a problem to their economic model. Yeah, no, I think, um, I think that's a very interesting point. And I think that the average person, the average fan, the see-through see through part of those aspects as well and um just just sort of broadening some of the stuff that, that you mentioned there obviously we, we we want players to have a seat at the table because as I sort of mentioned there without the fans and without the players there's effectively no football who, who are the players that you sort of interacted with on the player relations side that, that you really admire the work that they're doing yeah I mean we obviously we, we have a lot of meetings with players 
Um, and I think players are often discredited for a lack of education. And they're so educated because what they do day in, day out, the life that they live, they know the game inside out. They know what they should have, what they shouldn't have. And as we see professionalisation um, manifesting and growing and the trajectory of women's football growing specifically, and players are going into like these elite environments, like the Olympics, for example, and seeing how other athletes live, and you go back to the club and they haven't got standard protections. That's when you see them being like, actually, no, you know, I've been to the Olympics. I've had the best medical care. I'm going to go back to my club. I've only got a physio for three days. That's not acceptable. And it's like just giving them a taste of that, those elite environments actually empowers them to then go and ask for more at the clubs. So I think players that I'm really inspired by, obviously the obvious one is Megan Rapino. I think she's so powerful in what she says and what she does and actually how she says it. She's very articulate. Um, she's very emotive with the messages that she sends and it's, it's very authentic. I also, I also am kind of in awe of like, you know, the, the Afghanistan women's team who, um, you know, the, these are the, the, the players who are doing sport for good, who are actually, you know, trying to drive change via football and have been, you know, forced to leave the home countries, to force to leave the families. That's really empowering on, in a non-professional sense. I think the teams that are striking around the world, Denmark, Republic of Ireland, you know, who have threatened strikes and actually gone on strike. Ada Hegerberg, who plays for Lyon and is the Norwegian international, who's only just gone back to the Norwegian team after five years of exile because she's saying the standards are not right for me to play in. I think all of these athletes who are, you know, making a stand for better conditions are really powerful for me. And then you've got, you know, we met a couple of, players last week like um, Kim Little who's a phenomenal player plays for Arsenal um, who left the Scottish national team recently um, and you know she's really educated she's doing a master's she knows what conditions that players should have and what what's lacking and um, I think you don't have to be educated in you know in an intellectual sense I don't think you'd, it's, it takes a degree to, to, to say that you're educated because there's plenty of people out there with degrees who are idiots um, I think it's just about like being in, in an environment where you are prepared to push for more and have real substance and you can take people on that journey with you. So, for example, like US Women's National Team is so empowering and you'll see that as a ripple effect now. Like at FIFPO, for example, since that's happened, we've had several countries coming to us to ask us about, you know, what's a CBA, what's entailed in a, you know, what's detailed in a CBA. How can we ask for a CBA? How can we develop a CBA? And it's just like that one big moment that just has like, yeah, like I say, them ripple effects. So there's loads of examples um, in women's in women's football. And obviously there's, there's the examples of, you know, Christian Eriksen's phenomenal for me coming back to play. I think I find that incredibly brave. I don't I think a lot of athletes would do that. Raheem Sterling, Marcus Rashford, the things that they do for, you know, the... Um, like not only the communities, but, you know, um, the black community and ethnic minorities communities and they're bringing people together. And obviously then when they play badly, they get criticised for the, it makes them easy targets. So you've got to be a little bit careful and that's where it's important to protect players. But I think the, the, the sort of wave and the wave since Colin Kaepernick took the knee in 2016 has, has been really phenomenal for me. Yeah, because even just on that point there, how do we how do we effectively educate the masses 
around that sort of rhetoric that players can't do anything beyond just playing and and, and they can and, and and they can actually speak on these issues and, and they can set up their clothing line and they can be fashionable and they can be these characters that they want to be like look at someone like a Dominic Calvert Lewin I had Toby Wakefield Jesse Lingard's brand director on the podcast as well and and even like look at what Jesse Lingard's doing in terms of just his characteristic and the moment you go for a dip or you go for a bad patch people are quick to just jump on that and forget that you're just a human being like even the, the Harry Maguire public witch hunt against against someone like him. So how, how do we educate the masses that, or is there even a way to, 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 to even overcome it? I think what players are doing, both subtly and overtly, is really powerful. I think the Calvert-Lewin, Tom Davies thing, if you listen to any Everton fans, they give them a load of shit. And it's not about the performance, it's about the look, because they look different to the norm of what they expect from a professional footballer. Same with Deli Ali, what Glenn Hoddle commented on. These players are human beings. And of course, if they want to like fashion, let them like fashion. You know, they're stepping outside of the norms of the conventions and, and, and sort of unshackling themselves as professional footballers and putting themselves as a human being first. So I think for me, what, what needs to continue to happen is exactly that. I think it's really powerful that they're stepping out of sort of the football bubble and into a fashion space, into an entrepreneurial space or into you know, a, a sort of social justice campaign or whatever they feel passionate about. Like what you've just said, the human beings, of course, they're going to have like interests outside of football. You don't just finish football and be like, right, I'm just going to go and sit at home now and not do anything. Like they've got a right to live the life and okay, they get paid astronomical amount of money. That's not their fault. Like that's the game and that's like the, the industry that they work in. And fans contribute um, to that as well by paying to go and see them play. Exactly. And it's like yeah. it's like this real cyclical effect. And I think it's really important that fans, you know, watch the football. And if if Deli Ali has a bad game or if Tom Davies has a bad game and it's football based, great. We can all be foot, football critics and that's what we go and pay to watch the game for. But as soon as it's like, oh, it's because he's in the GQ, it's not because he's in the GQ. It's probably because he's had a bad week of training or maybe he hasn't ate properly or he hasn't hydrated himself properly or whatever it might be. He might just be feeling a bit down. He might just be feeling like he can't be arsed because he's a human. So I think like it, we, it, it's all, I think it's really important that we have these really leaders outside of the conventions of football or what we, anticipate, or what we expect professional footballers to be like. And, you know, support them when we do. And I think it, it, it goes back into like this, you know, this political sphere, doesn't it? It's really polarised at the minute. You're either left or you're right. And actually the, the nuance is lost in, in any political discussion. And football is inherently political, of course it is. So I think it's really important that we maintain our grasp on supporting these players for their political views or their fashion choices or whatever it is. And hopefully the handful of fans that don't give a shit about what whether Dominic Calvert-Lewin wears his hair out in like a sarong or whether he, and he, but he's scoring goals for Everton. Great. Do you know, like, I think that both things can happen. They're not mutually exclusive. And, and um, I think fans, and, and rightly so, you know, they pay a lot of money to go and watch a football match and, you know, you're passionate about the team you support. But I think once it starts to get into personal, um, um, like, you know, personal grievances, I think that that's when it crosses the line. 
and then it's lost and nuance is lost. And I think it's important that we maintain the nuance. And I think, you know, podcasts like this, academics, people at FIFA, people at FIFA, or clubs, whatever, to just support um, diversity within the sport. No, that's really good. Some quick fire questions before I ask you the last question. The most oh. fascinating, the most fascinating player that you've interacted with in your time at FIFA. I would say um, Magda Eriksson and Penella Harder. So we, I went for dinner with them not that long ago in London, and he was so um, socially engaged um, and knowledgeable. It was brilliant to see like two really intelligent women two very passionate women about improving the game and had lots of ideas how to do that. Um, very engaging, very thought-provoking people. Um, so, yeah, I would say them too, if I can say two. Yeah, no, that's brilliant. Your favourite player ever, ever? Steven Gerrard. Steven Gerrard. The best the best player that you ever played with? Barry Williams, without a doubt. Um, unbelievable player, right, left. Could do everything with the ball. I had the ple- pleasure of playing with her from a really young age as well. We were at the Arsenal Academy together when we were 16. Oh, nice. Um, and she was yeah, phenomenal. We always end the show with this question, which is what the footy needs to change or happen within your space. You've alluded to some stuff so far, Alex. Um, keen to hear what you think. Yeah, I think for me, the most important thing, particularly in women's football, is the redistribution of, of, of money. So we need to have a look at the economic justice or the injustices that exist within women's football. And you hear these stories all the time of like, you know, FIFA, for example, give $1 million um, to each union or each federation to um, a COVID support fund. And lots of the women's team didn't receive it. So it's like, where's the money and where's the money going? Because women's football is now marketable in lots of senses. And players are still not getting paid. They're not getting paid for international duty. They're not getting paid properly in the clubs. So I think it's it's really important that we think about how we pay women and how the money is distributed more evenly. Um, like, say FIFA is going to increase the pot of money for the World Cup 23. That's great, but they've also increased the teams. So actually, you're probably getting less money to go and play in the World Cup per union. It just doesn't make any sense. And this is not me saying, right, women and men should be paid equally because I think that that's just a, defu- like, a, a defunct um, debate. It's just a boring debate for me. I'm, I wouldn't even engage with anyone who said it. But I think what's really important is that we redistribute in a fair way so there's economic justice within the system for women. No, definitely. That's powerful, Alex. Thank you for coming on the on the What The Footy podcast. We definitely have to get you back on again soon and... Uh, Pleasure to chat with you. Nice one, Paul. I really appreciate it. Great questions. Cheers. What the footy? What the footy? What the footy? What the footy? Knew some Allardyce liked me, but I didn't know it was to that extent. Imagine being a kid in primary school. Now it's putting off. Powerful people, and I think they need to recognise that. But then also, they need to be represented the right way. Sport in general is nothing without fans. Uh, Based on one single source of revenue alone, that being the TV. Let's just win this to appease the fan.